And uh, but the good news is evangelism isn't dead. It's just changing. <laughs> and that's why the Shock Absorber is such a positive podcast because for me, because it's about adapting. It's okay. Well, these big changes are happening. How do we change? How do we keep our message the same? As, a, as Tim was saying, you know, stay on that evangelical line, but let's preach the gospel in new and changing ways. Welcome back, everyone, to the Shock Absorber podcast. We are here in the Third Space studio, and we are here with my two regular co-hosts, Tim and Stu. How are you guys? Going really well, mate. That's excellent. It's good to have you back, Tim. Yes, thank you. Did you have I, some time off? Uh, I did. I was running an essay during that time, but I, um, <laughs> other than that, I had a good time off. Real time so, off. Real time off. No, it was nice to slow down a bit, uh, which was really good. Well, yep. well-deserved rest to write an essay yeah, anyway. Thanks, <laughs> Stu, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks, mate. That's good. You've told everyone the staff team has a dog to bring a dog to work today. Yeah, we thought we'd try something different today, which is uh, bring a dog to work day and... Um, my dog, Abby, is just sitting at my feet here, so I might just bring her up and introduce yes, her to everybody. Yes, please. Again, if you want to see this, you check us out on YouTube. But, oh, she's very so cute. So this is, this is Abby, everyone. Yep. Make sure you don't hit this cow. Her, full, her full name is Abby Road after the Beatles album, because <laughs> in our family we call all our dogs after something Beatles. So her last name is after the Beatles album? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> so, no, she's, she, her formal name is, when she goes to the vet, is Abby Road Crawshaw. Right. So, yeah, this is Abby. She's a little cavoodle, if how, you're listening. How old is she? She is seven months. Oh, so she's go. only little. Yep. Yeah. So it's Abby. Well, Say as goodbye, a, Abby. Uh, as a not a huge fan of dogs, <laughs> I'm really enjoying today. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you who are listening or or even watching um, in the other room, there's about four or five dogs, and there's another dog at the end of the table, which yeah, is I've got Moriarty which is, here. Yep. yep. Which is um, the second time on the podcast. Actually. It is actually. Yeah. Yeah. It's dog heaven for me. Yep. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, let's get back into our season of Whatever Happened to Evangelism. Episode 12, guys, of this season, which is very exciting. Very exciting. But, Tim, um, I'm excited to have you back on the podcast because we talked about the 90s last week and uh, you're going to give us a perspective on the later 90s going into the 2000s, which is the kind of time that we're mm. looking at today. But first of all, as always, we like to start with a story or a cultural artefact, and you've brought a couple along, another prop like we did last week, which was great. Yes. And uh, please take it away and tell us tell us what you've got here. Yeah, right. Well, I was thinking about what is it like, what was it like as a teenager in the 90s, and the what we want to talk about today is this idea that there was this whole really large subculture, all-consuming subculture of evangelicalism. Um, and so I was kind of in there, but like Stu said last week about um, being a Gen X and not really being – you can't really discern your own culture until you're kind of a little bit mm. removed from it. I thought that was really helpful that Stu talked about that last week. Um, so I didn't really notice all of this at the time, but I could look back now and go, oh, yeah, that was really weird, um, <laughs> but kind of fun. So a couple of big things that were happening in this – uh, Christian subculture at this time a couple of really massive albums I'll hold this up for the camera for those on YouTube um, so DC Talk uh, Jesus Freak album that was a massive um, album in the uh, mid 90s I should have done some checks on these dates 1998 um, these was, are your CDs these too. are my CDs yeah CDs were this um, this <laughs> The sort of circular disc thing that uh, replaced cassettes, so you didn't have to wind with a pencil when you got, yeah. Oh, when great. it got uh, unspooled. Yeah, 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 that's right. No, um, so I mean, that's that kind of places me very much as a millennial as well, the CD moment. Mm. Um, but, and the other one was uh, Newsboys Take Me to Your Leader, which was also really uh, key. Christian subculture uh, rock and roll um, and there's one song on there called uh, Breakfast uh, where they don't serve breakfast in hell um, and it's just this <laughs> the album actually is really uh, hilariously funny and intentionally hilariously funny um, but they do a whole lot of really silly metaphors along there um, and one of them is this idea of remembering a leader of theirs a youth leader of theirs uh, who had passed away um, but one of the things this youth leader had done was run a breakfast club um, for them. And so they're using all these really terrible death puns um, all throughout to sort of remember fondly their youth leader, but also talk about the fact that he's, he's passed away, but also remembering this breakfast thing. And anyway, it's a big complicated story. Those who know, we know. Um, but if, if, is, you know, you know. if you know, you know. Yeah. But those are two... What are they saying on Facebook? If, if you know you were awesome or something? Don't they, I don't know. I haven't heard that one. I think it's a meme. Yeah, right. Um, 
But if you were a, a Christian in the 90s, they were two kind of albums that were just everywhere. Mm. Um, everyone knew them. They were really, really big and popular. Um, and the other thing that really came out in the 90s, which kind of defined this evangelical subculture, um, was VeggieTales. So Phil Vischer um, was the creator of VeggieTales, and he's got a whole story which I find fascinating. Um, but one of the things that's really interesting there was he was trying to create um, – he, he saw himself as sort of a Christian Walt Disney. He was trying to create really engaging um, cartoon storytelling for Christians. Um, and But he had this idea of – the story starts that he, they were all candy bars to start with. So he had all these characters, all candy bars, retelling the Bible stories. And his wife walked past his room one day when he was editing on his computer and said, no, parents are not going to appreciate you promoting candy bars with their children and so he changed them all to vegetables instead really yeah so <laughs> so he ends up with these veggie tales um but again it was a massive cultural thing and even the way he tells the story he's making these uh videos for children but the first generation to really capture them and understand them and really love them uh was actually sort of older uh teenagers um and young adults because of, he's got this very monty python-esque kind of humor very sarcastic um, kind of thread all the way through these little in jokes which go over kids heads and so it was these teenagers that were kind of getting these first and really liking them and he um credits a lot of his uh success to the way that some of the really young crew in christian bookstores would find these think they were hilarious and put them on the tvs to show to parents as they walk through the christian bookstores um but that was a massive thing as well so that, that kind of blew up got really huge um big complicated story behind that um and it's still going now um but yeah as terms of cultural moment they were some of the really big things that kind of defined what it was like as a christian growing up in the 90s they were some of the things that were really really significant and would have been really really popular um as we go through today we'll talk about those who are kind of reacting against the 90s what it was like to sort of be that older millennial or millennial um, in the Christian ecosystem. Um, and these are some of the, those kind of pop cultural moments that really uh, resonate with those of us who were in the moment at that time. Well, it's funny that you, you mentioned VeggieTales because I remember when I was coming through youth group and stuff, people would be talking about VeggieTales, but they were all people from Christian families. Yes. Because I was from a non-Christian family. I'm like, I don't know what this is. No idea, yeah, yeah. What are you, you watching a healthy TV show? <laughs> That's what <laughs> I thought they were doing. So um, it's interesting that you brought that up. Uh, Stu, we talked um, last week about your experience of the 90s, but I thought it would be fascinating to get uh, – Tim's perspective on the 90s because there's a little you're probably towards like more reached uh, the the kind of 20s age that we talked about with Stu at the later era of the 90s what are your you've brought some of the cultural moments mm. of, the, of the 90s but what are your memories of the 90s and your experience I suppose and you're growing up in a Christian family as well yeah so I graduated high school in 2000 so um started more that make high start of high school 94 95 mm. um and so yes that was my high school years um so that demographically that kind of puts me right in the cusp there's actually a, a phrase people sometimes use um called the zennial which is not quite gen x not quite gen not quite a millennial it's okay. it's these couple of micro generations in the middle um from sort of 79 to 83 and that's exactly where i am um and so in that was the kind of cultural moment it was this cusp between two big epochs so some of those big cultural moments for those of us who uh, were teenagers in the in the late 90s, early 2000s, in that sort of older millennial age, um, was, uh, yeah, the Columbine High School massacre was a massive thing. So that was uh, April 20, 1999. And because we were in high school at the time, um, I think that really shook us, even though um, culturally we're quite distinct from America. Um, there was this, we were caught up in that moment and that was a real thing it felt like it was really close to home because we were as we listened to the commentary on that we see a lot of the uh, footage um, that came out of the that high school um, massacre and also because a lot of the commentary was around the cultural moments that were also happening around that time so um, there was a lot of commentary whether the shooters were impacted by uh, the matrix movies and by marilyn manson violent video games I violent remember. video games yeah so you've got all of this commentary happening of basically our culture, our world. And it kind of, I think it may have been one of the first times that I was really aware that um, the news commentary was taking our culture uh, really seriously and, and, and trying to investigate it and internalise it and think about what it was going on there. Mm -hmm. So that was a really significant 
moment for us. And the other one uh, was the September 11 attack, so 9-11 in New York City. And that was uh, really shaking for us as well, I think, culturally, as those who we weren't old enough to remember um, the Berlin Wall. So even though that kind of happened in my lifetime, um, was it 89? 89. Mm. Berlin Wall comes down, um, the collapse of the Soviet Union and all of that. Um, so I'm, I'm in primary school during that time, so I'm not really culturally mm. aware that those things are happening. So I don't have that mindset of what it was like at the end of the Cold War and the relief that came from the Berlin Wall coming down and the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, I'm really coming aware culturally and socially where we've just got um, what Francis, Francis Fukuyama talks about as the end of history, uh, which is that capitalism won. Um, and so we're just on this continuous uptrend uh, where capitalism will just go from strength to strength. Uh, and that, I mean, in terms of our conversation, it's really interesting because capitalism, during, particularly during the Cold War years, had been closely tied to evangelicalism um, because it was this capitalist West and the um, Christianity that was linked with that versus the communist East and Soviet, um, which was um, atheistic and non-Christian. So you've got that; those things are being tied together really closely. Mm. Um, but yeah, when uh, so September 11, uh, for those who might need a, a catch up on that, if you weren't uh, aware, so that was um, the planes uh, being hijacked um, by Islamic terrorists being flown into the World Trade Center, which is these big, the, the highest skyscrapers on the New York City skyline. Um, and it represented a whole lot of things. So it represented maybe this idea of the end of history and the continuous uptick of capitalism. Maybe that's not the actual story. Um, and so it brings in a whole lot of fear um, of terrorism. Um, up until that point, terrorism, particularly from an American point, have been internal. So the biggest things have been the Oklahoma City bombings, which was all um, homegrown terrorists. Uh, Waco, Texas and all Waco, that. Waco, Texas, yeah. So you've got those things that happened. Now it was um, international terrorism and all of a sudden we're aware of what international terrorism and that's really new and really shaking. Um, and so, it, yeah, it kind of um, laid waste this idea of maybe – Maybe it's not just this continual end of history, isn't capitalism fantastic, it's going to go from strength to strength, but maybe there are still other forces in the world that are interacting with that and we need to take stock of. So for us as a worldview, it was quite shaking because we had only really had um, this sort of you know, growth out of Cold War mindset um, into you know, more and more goodness, I suppose, in some Continual ways. progress. Yeah, progress, yeah. yeah. Um, and so that was really quite shaking. And um, yeah, I don't know if you guys, I mean, I remember where I was when I first yeah, heard. Well, I mean, it was very, I didn't hear about it till very early in the morning, but it was a, a uni, uni day for me. I was on my way to uni. Um, but my mum came and woke me up really early um, and said, you need to come and watch the TV now. Yeah, we need to see what's going on. And mm -hmm. we just sat there shell-shocked for ages, just trying to process. And um, it, would, it had been a few hours since it had, happened um so there's a lot of commentary already happening i think both towers had already fallen by this time um but just kind of watching it, it just it, unbelievable like just you can't quite comprehend the scale of it um yeah so that was really shocking do you guys have memory oh, oh i remember i was in the middle of high school so i was actually in bed when it actually happened but um i i remember i the alarm that i had would, would wake me up with the radio and i remember the radio like waking up going what are they talking about? Like, what what has happened? And then I woke up and, and spoke to my mum. She's like, yeah, there's been a, a serious thing happened in New York. And um, my mum and dad were actually up uh, watching uh, West Wing, probably my favourite TV show at the time, which is really interesting. It's an American political show. And they were watching and they interrupted that because they get – obviously less, less and less people started watching – were watching West Wing, so they kept putting it later and later and on, at night on Channel 9, I think. And so they interrupted that – to switch to the, they actually saw the second plane fly into the uh, second tower. Um, wow. And so they were up until three o'clock in the morning. And I, I just remember even going to the, going to school, I was in middle high school. So yeah, I would have been in year nine, maybe year nine or year 10. And just everyone at school was just like talking about it. It was, it was all you would talk about all day. 
because um, it was such a like a momentous momentous event. Stu, was do you remember this? The time? Yeah, I, I I'd just gone to bed and my brother-in-law rang us and said he'd just seen it. And we got up and yeah, I saw the second plane going to the yeah. second tower and then saw them both collapse and yeah, it was pretty shocking. And then the Pentagon and and the other plane, they didn't know where it was going to go and yeah. yeah, it was pretty frightening. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> when you look back on it, you're just like, I cannot believe it happened. It mm. was. It was, and we spoke about last episode, Chuck Closeman, his book, The 90s, said that was the end of the 90s. And mm-hmm. it, that fits in a lot with what you were saying, Tim, is that it was the end of a particular era. That mm-hmm. the, that attack it signified the end of that um, uh, that era. I'm wondering, though, um, I mean, a couple of things that we looked at um, previously, and you also uh, spoke about um, uh, guns. Uh, Tim, I was just wondering, Stu, it's probably best for you to reflect best on this because it was in 1996. But the Port Arthur massacre, how, what was what do you think? What was your interpretation of that impact on culture, and maybe in contrast to what Tim was talking about in terms of Columbine and and the questions that were brought up around um, the use of guns in in America? Yeah, uh, um, Australia didn't have, doesn't have the same gun culture as America, but there was a big massacre down at Port Arthur, which is a historic site down in Tasmania, which is the most southern state of Australia. There's a historic site where they used to put convicts and people go there to this day to go and see the history there. And Martin Bryant drove there one day and shot a whole heap of people. 35 people visiting. died yeah, and 20, 23 injured I saw. But the Port Arthur massacre is, is an example of how it was different in Australia and America was that um, uh, gun laws is a, is a big topic in America. But in Australia, the, they changed the gun laws after the Port Arthur massacre to the gun buyback scheme. So that, that was probably a difference between the two countries in terms of what was going on in the culture. Having said that, in the US, uh, we always keep continue to look at that, how they're... Um, especially the Christian right, interacted with politics and around the fundamentalism. Um, uh, George Bush won his second election in 2004 and actually a national exit poll showed that a large number of voters chose moral issues as their most important priority when they were, vote, uh, were voting um, instead of looking at perhaps the Iraq war and post 9-11 economy. Same-sex marriage became a real political issue as some states moved to, uh, uh, to changing the laws on that. Um, but interesting, though, because George Bush was elected for the second time, the Christian light, right leaders um, wanted to uh, say that they actually had a real part in his victory in the election. Now, And that would probably be down the line of the, the fundamentalist um, uh, tenet of uh, Christian, the Christian leaders in America. But also um, there was a, a quote from uh, D. James Kennedy, who was part of that Christian right. He said that now that values voters have delivered for George Bush, he must deliver for their values. As we say in Texas, he's going to dance with the one who brung him. Um, and then went on to say, God has given us a reprieve, a short reprieve to reverse laws, pass bill amendments and reinstate values. And then so they saw there's a real opportunity to drive... Um, uh, to drive votes and to drive a, um, a push towards having more conservative judges on the Supreme Court and things like that. Um, so to many uh, evangelicals, this was a time as like, we, uh, sorry, not to evangelicals, to fundamentalists, is a time to like, we can get back our country again, which is obviously, we've talked about that before, even from the 70s and the 80s onwards. It was a time where they could actually, they wanted to bring back, almost Christendom is to bring back, uh, we, we're a Christian nation. We wanted to reclaim that. Uh, by the time that uh, towards the end of George Bush's reign, though, that that kind of movement again, as we've seen a couple of times with the moral majority, met its downfall as a political influence began to wane. It was probably at its that movement was at its peak in around 2005. But then, when the Republicans lost the majority control of the, of the Congress, then it started to see it move on the wane again. So what are your interpretations of that time? Because it's a it's a very different time, like that post we're almost moving to a post nine eleven time now. Did you think that um, there was a, a clash in terms of it was the end of uh, an era as we were talking about, but then there's still are the fundamentalists probably trying to bring back some of the things that they want to see? Yeah, I think Tim's introduction with the veggie tales is a really good comment because took me by surprise when a whole bunch of kids that were coming out of kids ministry started singing VeggieTales songs <laughs> in youth group and we were like what what's this so the bands that Tim brought for us this morning were younger uh, Cuspers music so they were mm. really resonating with that but some of the older teenagers were into MXPX and some of those other bands more than uh, DC Talk and and some of that but I think what what we saw was um uh, I, I started to notice that 
culture was changing faster. So Tim's generation coming through was definitely different to the teenagers that I was leading and watching them interact with each other was interesting because some kids would put te- uh, veggie tails on at youth group and dance to it and other <laughs> teenagers were like, what is going on with this? <laughs> so Nirvana fans all of a sudden being at a youth group where there's five years later there's veggie tails being played was a very stark contrast. Uh, to Pantera and Tool and bands like that. <laughs> so so that was a really interesting thing. And, and it got me thinking about what Mark Center had written in his book, The Coming Revolution of Youth Ministry, because he argued that technological change brings cultural change. And so as change comes forward, the two things that cause uh, change are big events like the end of the Berlin Wall or 9-11. They, those kind of epochs create new cultures but also the technological changes. So Tim was making a point of the CDs. That, that's also emerging at the same time as computers are available to people. And Tim was describing how the originator of VeggieTales was sitting in his house with a computer making a product that would be then uh, able to be distributed mass, on mass around the world. And I think that's the digital change that we're starting to see coming in in the 90s that means that small uh, actors can start creating mass content. And so... Things are changing quickly because of the computers and because of the internet, which is coming in. And just before these events that we've been describing, like 9-11 and Columbine and stuff, we've been introduced to things like the personal computer that can create video. We're also introduced to the internet. I remember my first browser was, I think, called Netscape, I think it was called, where I remember still sitting in the lounge room when someone said, Stuart, plug this into your phone and I'll show you that I can get you onto this thing called the internet. (laughs) And in my lounge room on this guy's really chunky old laptop, we saw this browser come up for the first time. And when you say phone, you're not talking mobile. No, it wasn't mobile. It was literally a landline into my computer. So Mark Center, I mentioned Mark Center, he said, interestingly, in his book that in his diagnosis of... uh, youth ministry and evangelism, sorry, evangelism during the the industrial age, he made the point in his book that was released in 1991 that it takes 50 years for there to be a cultural change. Uh, but I was witnessing not only 20-year changes from the baby boomers to Gen X, but also now I'm witnessing 10-year changes from within uh young teenagers that I'm ministering to and young adults having really different culture. And I think that would accelerate during the nine, uh, 2000s. But I think culture is changing almost every five years now. So what the, the challenge that gives for us is uh, Centre in his book argued for postmodern pluralistic ministry responses. So we need to have pluralistic postmodern evangelism to these different generations if you like so cuspers are different to gen x millennials will be different again and his argument in his book uh, that he wrote in 1991 was is the future of evangelism going to be different targeted evangelism to different like groups which is i think the necessary conclusion to the homogeneous unit principle which was created in the 70s which says you know young people have their own church service older people have their own church service now younger people are different from each other and not only tribally through different subcultures like skating and surfing etc but now demographically every five years the teenagers are very different from each other and things like columbine and 9-11 impacted tim's generation whereas my generation and the teenagers that i led subsequently were impacted by the berlin wall coming down so you can see that as the internet speeds up that's going to change as well. So it might even be worth for us to look at some of these different postmodern evangelism, um, I suppose, techniques in the context of this changing world because as fundamentalists are continuing to argue for this political conversation to be continuing in churches, you've, you've got a lot of really big ministries, evangelical ministries that are changing, and you're also getting new ones starting up that are coming, which we'll get to as well. Well, just, just, I was going to ask, just before you do that, you, you said that uh, obviously you were leading young people and you were noticing that the speed of change was, ch- was accelerating. Mm. What did you do yourself as a church leader to say, we need to adapt to this, and, and what did you do practically? Because yeah. in the 90s, I thought we were setting up something that would last a bit longer, but then as I saw it changing, then I read Centre, that's what why we came up with the shock absorber because the shock absorber was let's build a mechanism within our ministry where young people are constantly telling us what they're so let's sit down and talk to tim's generation about veggie tales and let's get them to talk with the kids who are listening to tool and to pantera and let's all work out some common ground where we can 
we can work together and let's have the youth leaders as adult Christians who've spent a bit more time in the Bible bringing theological perspective to bear to that conversation and then we used to do that regularly so we, we already had a mechanism that we set up in the 90s to do that as we said in previous ep- episodes when I started out as a youth minister my impulse was to listen to the young people and try and understand what difference Nirvana was making to them and, mm. and those sort of things and we call that the commitments so what that was was we got committed Christians who were in the group to meet before the group started for half an hour to an hour just to have a pray and a read but also have a talk and talk about issues facing the community week to week and we called that group the commitments and it was really cool that we had that set up in the 90s because then in the 2000s when Tim's generation comes on and then subsequent generations we embrace them into the commitments and said as younger committed Christians we are older committed Christians but let's all talk together and let's see if this shock absorber idea can help us to change and help you to be embraced into our culture a bit as well so the veggie tail thing went through for quite a while and uh I think that it was something that people could embrace um, and understand even if they didn't like the new stuff that the younger kids were coming through with. Didn't you remember talking to people about Tool? <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's interesting because <laughs> I, I, can, I can remember the older guys um, at Soul Revival, like the, the, those who were like even just three or four years older than me, when they're into Pantera and Tool and Nirvana – I mean, I think I was a bit slow on the uptake on pop culture, but by the time I was really aware of pop culture, and I've said this in other episodes, but for me it was Blink-182, Green Day, um, Living End. And so we, we'd moved past that kind of that, that industrial and the grunge and mm. that was really old hat. Like, and so, yeah, I can remember guys at church with their tool T-shirts on and listening to Pantera and I was like, I don't really get that music but give me some Blink-182 <laughs> and some MXPX and I'm all over it. And that's the challenge for the youth leaders because we're trying to lead a change that's only five years. Yeah. Like, yeah, so yeah. we don't even have five years to work out what to do. These these young crew that Tim's representing are completely different to these other yeah. crew that have come through and so that's why the Shock Absorber was really good because we're saying let's build a framework where we can do it formally and informally. So we'd have these formal conversations in the commitments but then informally we just work out how we move forward together and express mm. our Christianity as a group. And that was the beginning of our intergenerational uh, moment. Mm. And one of, the, I mean, one of the things I do remember growing up was that both talking up and down the generations. So we did feel listened to. Like when we brought a new MXPX or Value Pack or Goaty Hook album and said, oh, youth leaders, check this out. It's something I'm really excited about. The youth leaders would be genuinely excited to share that with us mm. and go, yeah, this is cool. Like, let's listen to more of this. But then I also remember nights where – um, there was one particular night at Rev, uh, which was our year nine, ten youth group. Um, we had uh, the leaders would play one of their favourite Christian artists, and it was this real mixed bag of all sorts of things. Um, yeah, Rich Mullins and Rebecca St James, and um, there were some of these you know more CCM artists like Audio Adrenaline, The Third Day, and then um, one guy, Dave, he played this kind of hardcore band. Um, and that was the one that really captured my attention. I thought, this is fantastic. Um, and so that got me into the real heavy edge um, of you know, music and in particularly there was a massive hard Christian music scene at the time through Tooth and Nail and Solid State that was going on. Um, but that was all, But it was also a sharing down. So they were sharing their music that they really liked, um, but they were listening to us. Um, I remember sitting around at Commitments time and just feeling genuinely listened to. So... Again, I can experience, I can appreciate now what I was experiencing at the time, which was the shock absorber in place. It was here I was as a fifteen-year-old, um, just being able to share with my youth leaders, and they're genuinely listening, and they genuinely care, and they want to have the our views shape ministry and shape the way in which we do relationships, but feeling genuinely loved and cared for at that time as well. Um, I think I've shared before that one of my uh, moments that I remember was we had. Um, one of our Rello bashes was trying to get a whole lot of different age groups together. Rello bash in Australia is rel- relative party. Yes. A, bash, a bash is a party, but yeah, Rello is a yeah. relative. So a Rello bash is like a relative party. Get, getting all your relatives together and having a, a shindig. A shindig. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we had this uh, shindig. Uh, all these, um, but it was, it was also a, a, a band night. And I think what Stu mentioned, I think you mentioned last week, Stu, that this idea that when we did bands at Soul Revival, it wasn't as an attractional funnel method of, oh, we hope a really cool band comes so that lots of people come so we can then share them about Jesus. It was, we are Christians 
and we love music. So let's party and have a band because as Christians, we just love sharing music together. So from an outsider, and you talked about how um, the number of your peers would kind of look into Soul of Rival and go, oh, you guys have been really incarnational. Yeah, um, right. And so from the outside, it kind of looks like where they were trying to be incarnational, but it, even as someone who was experiencing that as a young person, which, that's which means like you, you do a culturally relevant thing, and then people come to that. That we won't go into all the incarnational theory. Yeah, now, yeah. But people yeah, can go back to previous episodes. That, yeah, mm. that topic. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, but yeah, I remember there being you know fourteen, fifteen year old, and you know just having a mosh and a which is jumping up and down, dancing. It was very popular in the nineties. Um, <laughs> but having a mosh with all these people of all these different generations, and having um, Brad Ware there, who was probably twice my size, um, really smashed up against him. Um, and but it was in this like way that was just really celebrating who we all are together um it was more like a group hug wasn't it it was yeah 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 there was um real a great love for each other appropriate yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah so that's what as i was experiencing our revival through the 90s that was definitely um experiencing that and now able to look back and reflect on yeah i can see that that was a shock absorber in place Mm. um and in terms of what it meant for evangelism uh one of the things i think and we've talked about this on multiple episodes but the idea that because we were excited about being Christians, there was this real natural and organic spread to our friends to invite them. Of course you want to invite your friends in because you're just really excited about this. Uh, not not the band because it's super cool and not because you know what you do at youth group is the most exciting thing you could do on a Friday night, but it was because here's a group where I feel valued and belong and I have purpose and meaning and these adults are genuinely interested in me in um, really, you know, God honouring and, and safe ways and they care for my growth and they also want to see me and my friends become Christians and get to know Jesus better. So, of course, you invite your friends into that space. Um, and so, yeah, I think that was a real natural way in which we did do evangelism, which was come and check out this community who loves Jesus and loves me and that's really awesome and I feel really safe in that space mm. and really excited about that space. Yeah, I think that was definitely my experience too, obviously later, in later years. But <laughs> yeah, that was definitely my experience. Uh, Stu, you mentioned before like to have a look at a few things that emerged once, like kind of around the time of 9-11. Mm. And I think... Yeah, so things changed and things emerged. Yeah, too. exactly. So one of the things I thought was that we, we spoke about the kind of the downfall of the Christian right or at least their influence to begin with. But um, someone that rose to prominence at around that time or just after was um, someone called Rick Warren who became very famous with his uh, Purpose Driven Life book. That's right, and it was yeah. a massive seller. I think I, I read it sold over more than 50 million copies. Yeah, um, and if we're going to talk about evangelism, we need to talk about Rick Warren for we, sure. Yes, yeah, and he, yeah. well, because he became a celebrity, he was on TV mm-hmm. a lot. Uh, he um, seen as the new America's pastor, yeah, kind of yeah. a, a name that was given to Billy Graham. So you can uh, that makes a lot of sense in terms of the, the position and the standing that he had. So he started Saddleback Community Church, which was in California with only seven people in their living room. And then it became, it's, it's a very large church now um, and they were inspired by Donald McGavran and Incarnational Ministry and they ran what they were called seeker sensitive services now I'm wondering if you guys can kind of define that for me what a seeker sensitive approach would would entail yeah so Rick Warren did a demographic approach he demographically researched his area that he was planning his church into and I can't remember the name he gave to it but he picked an archetypal um guy that would go to his church right. and called him something and and so they targeted their ministry to him and his family and so that effect meant that all they all the communications they did was to communicate to this demographic and and it was oh, i think i can't i don't know exactly where saddleback is it's i think it's, it's in, in the, the orange county midwest is that midwest california yeah so california um yeah so so the idea was to to have a real targeted ministry to to that person and their families. And then that was also similar to another leader, Bill Hybels, who had started up in a small way too. He actually started when the Jesus Movement started. He had a youth group in the Jesus Movement in the early 1970s that started meeting in a in a theatre, a, a cinema, I think, to start off with. And then they became a, a massive mega church as well. So Saddleback, uh, Willow Creek is the church that, Bill Heibel started, yeah. these churches are starting to become seeker-sensitive. So they're saying that baby boomers aren't likely to go to a church that's from their parents' culture, and so we need to take away the cultural boundaries between 
this new baby boomer generation and the gospel. And so let's make a baby boomer church, really. Uh, it was really focused on people driving in their cars to church. That was a really big part of it because people lived in their nuclear families predominantly and they drove everywhere. And so you needed to have a really big car park for this church and it needed to be a good experience even as you drove your car into the church. So they had all these different new ideas that they were promoting and Rick Warren with his purpose-driven life is still influential on evangelism and evangelicals to this day because even though he did get politically active, he was very instrumental in reframing how even church leadership is set up. So in Australia, they've taken on these Rick Warren ideas in many big churches and they call it the five M's. And I don't know what all five M's are supposed to be off the top of my head. I'm not an expert on this, but EV church, particularly on the in Gosford and the Central Coast, uh, really embrace this Rick Warren approach. And then they've populate, been, become a popular proponent of the 5M's model and within the 5M model you sort of say you know what are the I think Rick Warren calls them purposes what's what's the purposes that we need to to be attaining as Christians and then let's set up our church around those so you know uh, the the 5M's takes those purposes and calls them things like magnification for music and singing maturity membership and mission is that yeah so there's magnification membership, maturity, ministry, and mission. It'd be unreal if anybody listening or watching is is using those 5M model to, to run their churches. But evangelism in that model is you just have one pastor who's looking after the mission for the, all the different congregations of your church. And so the idea is how do we expand our churches? How do we make them bigger? And again, that was uh, from the church growth movement in the 70s that you were mentioning. There's this sense of we need to grow our churches bigger. So saddle back and and, and Willow Creek were really influential. With the Seeker Services, I remember back in 1991, Willow Creek had a conference at Darling Harbour in Sydney and Bill Hybels and his team came out and it was huge. There was this huge number of evangelical leaders in Sydney came and listened. And the big takeaway was it's important that we don't just run a service for everyone. And their, their methodology was you have a Seeker Service on the Sunday for people who aren't Christians. So what would it look like to design a church service for non-Christians? And then you have a believer service during the week that is what the Christians go to for maturity. So there's this sort of separation of mission and discipleship that we're we're talking about on the podcast because in Soul Revival we've tried to bring those two things back together in an intergenerational approach that's very different. But this is a homogeneous unit approach. Let's have a seeker service for different age groups. So they have multiple seeker services on a weekend for old people, young people, uh, families, and then let's have um, good music, really professional quality, something that baby boomers will go, yeah, because there was this kind of... uh, a bit of a cringe for the Christian church that we weren't professional enough, we weren't as good as what people seeing on TV or in concerts, we need to lift our game. So the seeker services were lifting our game and making ourselves more professional. And so by the beginning of the 90s, that had reached a zenith, I suppose, around the world. It had become huge uh, as a methodology from people like Rick Warren and Willow Creek. And I think there's a lot of people in Australia who are aspirationally hoping to build a mega church in, in places like Sydney. But that was interesting for me as a Gen Xer watching that because I wasn't really connecting with a lot of the themes that were being taught to us as really crucial. And even back then, I don't think I was consciously thinking this, but subconsciously I'm thinking this is something that I think my parents' generation would get heaps into, but not Gen Xers because I was more less interested in church as an event, more interested in church as a community, I think. And so I think it's almost interesting that the Willow Creek phenomena starts to ebb in the 90s and... It was huge in the 80s. I mean, like you said, Saddleback became a church, a mega church off seven people. Willow Creek, similar number, became a mega church, you know, with tens of thousands of people going. But then they really tried to work out how do we do that for the next generation and started to struggle in the 90s to perpetuate that model, which I think they probably thought this is going to last for decades. But again, they didn't take into account Centre's idea that, that culture is changing all the time. And I think Gen X caught the baby boomers by surprise because I think definitely at Guy Anglican Church where I was going, they just assumed that we would carry on the homogeneous unit principle and want to do that for forever because this is such a great way of doing church. But we were like, oh, well, you've already changed church when 
you changed it from the traditional service to the homogeneous unit principle, we felt permission to have a go at changing it for our generation too. But then as we were changing it for Gen X, we were conscious that Tim's generation, only five years later, were already very different. And that's why the shock absorber theory to me is really important, that rather than setting up a model that you say, this is our model of church and now we're going to do this for 20 years, I think we need to be constantly preaching the same biblical message but but listening to young people and trying to continue to adopt our approach particularly when a massive thing like 9-11 happens you know that that's going to change things yeah any comments on rick warren and that kind of saddleback church and what bill hybels had in that that period of time too oh no just to echo what Stu is saying that there's been a number of commentators have talked about how the that church growth movement that seeker sensitive kind of movement was very much uh, a boomer expression of church which is interesting what we'll look at as we we go on um this episode is to okay well what what then becomes the gen x model as they also look which is kind of interesting because at one point it's it's just the homogeneous unit principle again right it's just, it's it the is. new generation yeah. trying to say oh well we're going to make it relevant to our demographic right. um but also the challenging the, the challenge that uh the different generations also bring so trying to both be generationally relevant but also break down the homogeneous unit at the same time and how to hold those things in tension um, and then not just uh, so Gen X models but then what might um, yeah, millennial models of church look like and how do they keep shaping? Mm. I think the, the other interesting thing, though, is also um, Rick Warren, in particular, his interaction on the political scene. And we spoke like it was more down the line of what Billy Graham was doing rather than um, trying to change everything. Um, uh, he hosted a presidential debate in 2008 between the two candidates, Barack Obama and John McCain, actually at his church, which was a televised event called the Civil Forum on Presidency. And Rick Warren himself was the moderator, which is really interesting. And uh, Rick also um, gave the inaugural benediction when Obama um, was mm. a, uh, inaugurated in um, uh, February 2008, I think it would have been. Yeah, so, so it seems to be different to uh, the Jerry Falwells and the Pat Robinson kind of fundamentalists reaction to politics. Mm. Um, it seems more like Rick Warren, um, again, this is an outsider looking in, but he does seem to be more that Billy Graham, he's, he's politically aware, um, he's politically and socially engaged, but he's not as when it almost as a you know, our political engagement is a fruit of discipleship, but the main game is bringing people to Jesus. So we bring people to Jesus. We do like the six sensitive service is really clear on that. Like we want to make people feel comfortable at church so that we can remove all the barriers so that they can hear the gospel of Jesus clearly. Um, and so that's the evangelical impulse I think mm. there that is it's about Jesus. It's about bringing people to know Jesus. Um, but as he's seeking to have sort of a holistic discipleship of the people in his church and recognising that he has more of a, uh, a platform than just his own church, it's also saying, well, as Jesus followers, how does that shape all the different things that we do? So he, there's a number of different offshoots at Saddleback that engage with a lot of different social questions. Um, and one of them is things like this, this political engagement um, but yeah the difference one of the differences we've pointed out over the last few episodes is that the fundamentalist impulse is let's change the country for christ through political means mm. whereas the evangelical impulse is no let's change people through the gospel of jesus but that will have an outflow um, and so it seems that, i mean the way that he can um, bring this uh, these two different candidates together, both the Republican and the Democrat in the same space, that he can be a Christian giving a benediction to a Democratic president, um, which in some fundamentalist circles would be complete anathema. How could you possibly stand on the same platform yeah. as someone who was a Democrat? Um, because don't we know that all Christians are in this bundle of Republican, conservative, and political... That's, that's the fundamentalist view. The evangelical right. view is to bring the two candidates into your church so yeah. they can debate together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and have this and through influence line. The, I think there would have been something in the back of his mind. I mean, might be a bit presumptuous with this, yeah. but he's, he's almost thinking, can we influence these two guys for Christ in that? Because mm. the megachurch movement was taking the Billy Graham crusades and bringing them into churches. So there are a number of megachurches across America that were like big Billy Graham rallies every week. Mm. And so the reason they had seeker services on the Sunday is because they were preaching the gospel every Sunday so that people would become Christians every Sunday. Yes. And then 
discipling them during the week. So, yeah, Tim, I think what you're describing there with the two candidates coming into Saddleback would have been an evangelistic opportunity for Rick Warren in his mind. I think. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And, and again, one of the things you see in Billy Graham's life is that he was um, quite friendly and had influence on nearly all the presidential, um, all the presidents during his lifetime and during his ministry, irregardless of what platform they were on and which which party that they were part of um he saw that as part of his ministry was to as you know america's pastor to actually speak to the presidents but because he had this evangelical through line um he for most of his life um i think was it was it nixon or Ray, one of the he got he got very close to one of the presidents and then kind of backed away realized that he kind of made a mistake well nixon was nixon yeah, I think. Nixon if he was, was nixon, yeah. himself in a serious trouble yeah. yeah and ended up resigning under watergate well yes yeah, yeah you've got all that so yeah. I, and then I think that that year i kind of made billy graham realize oh no hold on i got a little bit too, too close yeah. too close but he was still close um and you went at mm. billy graham's funeral you had a number of presidents speaking um about their uh thankfulness to him that he had just kind of pastored them he'd been in the room with them he was happy to pray with them and read the bible with them and um and I th- again as we talk about this what's the history of evangelicalism that there's that through line that's not trying to take partisan position but just to be present uh in the political sphere but without using politics to drive um change and i think i found a quote from rick Warren which kind of summed up the way he was thinking that which mm. which we're trying to understand he says the bible calls the church the body of christ and what happened what has happened in the last 100 years is the hands and feet have been amputated and the church has just been a mouth and primarily it's been known for what it's against but i think what he was trying to do is obviously bring those two candidates together and to start influencing the way that you guys are, are talking about it mm. um another thing that you brought up before Tim, when you were talking about Veggie Tales and um, a couple of CDs that you brought yep. in terms of the um, cultural artifact, was uh, the evangelical subculture that you um, said that you can almost become ensconced in. What did you mean by that? Um, and was that something that happened in Australia, or was it just purely like was it more based around American that American subculture? Yeah, I, I'm trying to just. You know, interrogate my own experience, but also what I see of others of my generation as I listen to them. Uh, you know, now that we we're at the, in our late thirties, uh, early forties, there's you know obviously a lot of these people have voices. They're on social media. They're writing um, commentary and books and these kind of things. So there's a lot of um, discussion and trying to you know um, deconstruct what the experience was growing up. Uh, so a lot of these voices are American and, and we have this American subculture, which, I mean, all of, all of these things I brought in are all American products and mm. there was some Australian version. So I don't think the evangelical subculture was as deep in Australia. I think we we got some of the fruits of it, I suppose you could say. Like we, we got some of the products that were there, the, the bands, the TV shows, the T-shirts, the, you know, there were some things that we were in, um, but, yeah, as I listen to uh, some of my peers from America, it does seem there's quite a deep evangelical subculture going on there. Uh, and this is really becoming apparent as a lot of my generation are part of uh, what's called the ex-evangelical movement. And so these are people who are moving away from uh, the definition of evangelical that they've grown up with, which is all of this cultural stuff. There's TV shows, there's... Um, schools universities i mean you could go through to your late 20s and still be completely immersed in this subculture of evangelicalism um, because again there's numbers in america it's also culturally um, there's more of that uh, longer christian heritage but yeah you can go to all of these things you can be fully immersed in evangelical subculture um, for all of your life and not really have an outside voice um, critiquing um, or speaking into your experience. And so a lot of my generation are getting into their late 20s to mid 30s and realising, hold on a sec, there's a, there's a bigger world out there. And also we're not quite sure if we believe all of these things that were bundled together. So I said two weeks ago that it's this bundling that a lot is causing a lot of stress. I think this is my kind of personal assessment of it, is that um, people are realising that they've been told there's a message of Jesus which is also uh, loving VeggieTales and DC Talk and MXPX and, uh, and it's also going to these particular Christian schools and it's also having this particular political framework and it is also being you know, 
the moral majority and having these particular positions. And so when you, you have all that, you've been told that Christianity, that to be an evangelical is all of those things. Um, and some of that is very much in the fundamentalist camp. Um, then you've got these people who are saying, well, I'm not a fundamentalist, or maybe I'm not as conservative as these values, or maybe I like these other bands that are not part of evangelical subculture, or maybe I have different values. Um, and so you have all of these different experiences that people are wrestling with um, and sort of stepping outside of um, what they're calling evangelical, but I think we're trying to diagnose and say is more fundamentalist. Uh, but they're not quite sure where to land because if you've been told that all of this package is a bundle altogether, then does that mean that if I have, if I'm not, uh, you know, uh, on the far conservative side politically, does that mean I'm not a Christian and I can't be friends with Jesus anymore? And for some people, it seems that there's, those two things are so wrapped up together that they think, well, if I'm not hyper conservative, then maybe I can't be a Christian. Um, and so they're then trying to find out where they are in the world. And so Stu talked a couple of weeks ago about a um, number of Gen Xs finding that space at Labrie to kind of deconstruct their faith and their experiences and try and work out what, is it, what does it actually mean to follow Jesus? Can I still be a Christian and have some of these things? And I think the evangelical moment seems to be um, the millennials' Labrie type moment. It's, it's the trying to wrestle and find out what that means. Um, and for some, it's landing completely outside of faith. There's a, well, I'm not a... I'm not a believer. I don't believe in anything anymore. For some, it's maybe I'm a really broad Christian and they might be landing in more of a progressive Christian camp, um, which might have, um, when we talked about the modernist fundamentalist debate where the modernists uh, at the Scopes Monkey Trial were uh, more liberal and progressive in their theology and their understanding of scripture, some are landing there. Um, others are saying, well, maybe I'm going to uh, more liturgical churches because a lot of the evangelical churches um, like Saddleback and Willow Creek, Seeker Sensitive, aren't very liturgical, but they're finding a home in um, Anglicanism or Catholicism or some of these other traditions that have a lot more of the bells and smells and, and the stand-up, sit-down and corporate prayers and actually finding that interesting and different. Um, and then there's others, which I think are representative of this through line of evangelicalism who are trying to say, okay, I recognise that that bundling, um, particularly the bundling with a lot of fundamentalist ideas, is not um, all there is to say about Christianity. There is actually a Christianity outside of fundamentalism and who are trying to walk this middle road. Um, and the problem that they're facing as I kind of look in on the commentary is those who are on the very progressive um, side of Christianity, look at them and say, well, you're still really conservative because you still believe all the core tenets of the Christian faith. Um, but those who are in the fundamentalist camp look at them and say, well, you're super woke and progressive um, because you've moved away from our fundamentalist definition of what it means to be a Christian. And so you've got a whole lot of um, authors and podcasters and um, speakers in this space who are trying to work out what is this new evangelicalism and as i look back on history the conversations we had about people like billy graham and christianity today um fuller seminary wheaton all those kind of guys who were trying to think after the scopes monkey trial what's this new evangelicalism um and trying to reclaim that label that's not fundamentalist and it's not modernist um it seems to me we're in a very similar moment and that my generation seems to be wrestling with these ideas of what does it mean to not be fundamentalists um, but we don't want to be progressive because we want to hold on to the tenets of the faith but we're not quite sure how to distinguish ourselves and at the same time getting battered around by both sides yeah tim that's really interesting because again hearing it from your perspective as a cusper between millennials and gen x's i, I think is a fascinating perspective you mentioned labrie with gen x's and cuspers going to Labrie in 2000 I, I was seeing millennials and mm. oh, sorry these cuspers and gen x's all struggling with what it meant to be a christian another thought that i had as you were speaking was that uh, i was talking to tim hawkins who was the youth minister of the biggest youth group in sydney back in the early 90s and his group was about 650 teenagers at castle hill anglican church and and um, during the 90s and into the 2000s though that group pretty much halved and I said to Tim uh, uh, 
at a conversation I was having with him, I, Tim, what do you put that down to? Why do you think your youth group's shrinking from its heights in the 90s to where it is in the early 2000s? And he said, he said when we were just having, not just, but when, when all our teenagers went to state schools, we had lots and lots of Christians in the state schools. We had a big ministry in the state schools. And they were asking their friends to come to the youth group. But then over time, the parents were embracing what Tim was talking about as the evangelical subculture. And one of the aspects of the evangelical subculture was Christian schools. And so a lot of parents started pulling their kids out of state schools because they were worried about the secular influence of the state schools on their kids and they wanted to put their kids in a Christian school so they were brought up as Christians rather than in a state school. And so the impulse for for youth ministers in the early 90s was to encourage parents to obviously do what's best for each individual child but to not give up on the state system because we felt like for evangelism that was having a massive impact on you know our decision to disciple our children more wholeheartedly in a christian school during their christian you know time as a as a primary school kid and then a high school kid so christian schools are great for for christian kids to go to but one of the impacts of that is that they they tim hawkins pointed out that the christian kids aren't in the state schools anymore and talking to their friends and being in that context and sharing uh, conversations with them in that context. So the interesting thing from hearing from Tim is some Christian teenagers who go into those Christian schools then rebel against that package or that, you know, that modelling of all all that stuff thrown together. And um, so, yeah, there's a double impact actually, isn't there? Because a lot of teenage kids actually leave the church when they hit the end of high school uh and what was also interesting about what you were saying tim is that the whole story of veggie tales was a christian subculture being brought into our youth group from the children's end because in our context not many of our teenagers went to christian schools mm. when you first came along and they're all from state schools 80 percent of our youth group were made up of kids who'd made a commitment to Jesus in their high school years. But then all these children that came through from Christian schools into our youth group came in with this Christian subculture. Mm. So the conversation wasn't just about a cultural change from five years. It wasn't just all kids in your age group were listening to VeggieTales. It was the Christian kids going to Christian schools that were listening to VeggieTales. And then we were trying to work out, oh, how do we absorb that culture and how do we work with that Christian culture we're Christians, but we didn't have veggie tales, and so we didn't have all that um, bundling. So, yeah, I, th- I think next episode of the podcast, we're going to be talking more about that progressive impulse, that ex-evangelical context that Tim was talking about, and it's really interesting to look at that in the context of evangelism that takes place after nine eleven, and evangelism gets uh, reframed in our society as proselytization, and there's a, a, a big fear of um, you know the influence that faith leaders have on young people after 9-11 because of the rise of terrorism there's this fear of radicalization and the fear of radicalization is implied across all faiths and as we'll talk about next week we're also going to come across the new atheists that are becoming more and more aggressive in their criticism of not only christians and the christian church but god himself and the bible and so that's going to change the whole uh, the whole environment of evangelism. So we talked last episode about this big spike in evangelism through the 90s, but in the 2000s, there's going to be this period of time where many people are starting to question, is evangelism actually dead? Because we're going to have more and more restrictions on people to share their faith in schools. More and more kids are being pulled out of state schools into into uh, Christian schools from churches. And the new atheists are going to be attacking the Christian position and more and more uh, Christians are going to be seen not as oh these harmless daggy people who try and stop my kids listening to rock and roll they're starting to become seen as dangerous people and to share your faith with someone is increasingly going to be seen as more and more problematic which would be really interesting to unpack next podcast yeah I think you've done a really good job of setting us up for next week I was just wanted to ask one question around that that emergence of the, the Christian subcultures do you think that was a reaction to we talked about a lot of things collapsing towards at the beginning of the 90s and, and then coming to the 2000s do you think that was a reaction to um you mentioned last episode uh, REMs losing my religion. Do you think yeah. that was a, a way? I mean, I found some uh, um, some data on from a, a, the General Social Survey that said even between 1991, when 87 percent of young adults said they were they were Christian, whether it would be Catholic or Protestant, to 1998, seven years later, the 
the share of within that 18 to 35 year olds had dropped 14 percentage points to 73 percent so i think the reason i ask that question is if faith is supposedly dropping off but then we talked about the uh, evangelical um uh, surprising evangelical awakening last last episode mm-hmm. i'm just trying to pass those two things together why do, why do you think there is that what that why that christian subculture emerged yeah i think i think what we're looking at is a few things the baby boomer culture was was evangelizing in america evangelizing an evangelical culture so there was this sense of calling people to come home if they'd abandoned the faith, like come back to the faith. So, you know, the the saddleback idea of looking at some, you know, uh, young family dad with his kids, you know, this guy's probably gone through Christian Sunday school, Christian youth group. He's gone to university or college and he might have even come back, maybe not going to church anymore. It's like, let's win them back to something they know. But increasingly, like you said, there's this... Uh, end of Christendom that's taking place and we, we trace that all the way back uh, to the beginning of the Enlightenment as a, journey, a long-term journey but we also looked at the epoch in the 60s where there was a massive turn away from baby boomers from the church so much so that there was that Time magazine article in the 60s that said is God dead in America but yet that was uh, again there was a surprising revival in the early 1970s with the Jesus movement where where thousands and thousands of young people became Christians and came back to church and and there was there was a new Christian subculture born out of that moment of the Jesus movement in the early 70s with contemporary Christian music creating the kind of products mm. that Tim's talking about Christian bookshops and now producing what some people started to turn by the late 70s Christian junk there was there was there was stickers t-shirts you know honk if you love jesus you could what buy mugs buy Buy mugs yeah yeah jesus loves you you know all this sort of stuff it was all pitched as evangelism but by the 80s it had started to look really cheesy but the the christian music industry in the 80s was so massive that it was it, it was such a big money earner with contemporary christian music and that starts to reach its epoch with tooth and nail in the early 1990s and so tim's coming out of this christian subculture in some senses because he's been brought up in a church with a sunday school and going to christian school which are all great things but he's been immersed in this subculture which is starting to wane by the 1990s and so we talked last week about um, artists in the 90s saying they weren't so much wanting to be christian bands anymore like with contemporary christian music but they wanted to be christians in a band so there's all already this secularization there but at the moment that this is all happening um christians particularly in sydney where we live are moving more and more towards discipleship almost trying to strengthen that christian subculture which is a good impulse to have discipleship but we talked about no guts no glory last week being a uh, an instance where um there were many many christian youth leaders in sydney saying stop having big missional outreaches on a friday and just have a bible study with four kids on a sunday afternoon and get them to ask their friends but what ended up happening by 2000 the number of newcomers coming to church is actually starting to decline quite dramatically in sydney anglican circles and so the number of newcomers is declining because 70 percent or plus of people who make a profession of faith in sydney uh, do so in their teenage years or their their childhood years so if you're taking christians out of state schools and the christian youth groups have become more discipleship orientated towards christian teenagers and you've got christian kids going to christian schools more often which means that sometimes they don't even go to youth group because their parents are saying well they're getting their christian discipleship at school there's there's less and less opportunity for these christian ch- children and teenagers to be sharing their their faith with their friends and so you they're the, the number of opportunities for evangelism is decreasing as the number of people who come to church is also decreasing. So once upon a time, it was culturally uh, relevant for people to get married in a church, but increasingly now, not many people get married yeah. in churches anymore. So really. we're, we're just seeing this focus on discipleship as our culture moves further away from Christ. So that by the mid-2000s, around 2007, I think it was, we've said this before, but the Catholic Church came out with a survey that said that there's, uh, it was called the spirit of Gen Y, which was an early uh, tagline for the millennials. But the spirit of Gen Y was that um, the baby boomers were less spiritual than their parents. The Gen Xs were less spiritual than their parents, which is what you're indicating with the, the you know, losing my religion. But the worrying trend was that what we'll talk about next week is into the 2000s, the millennials and the cuspers that Tim is a part of are becoming less spiritual again. So it's really interesting that, 
that uh, that that study didn't come out up with that people are, are still spiritual but they're just cranky at organized religion by 2007 2008 people are less spiritual they're less interested in spiritual things and interestingly more and more christian young people a part of that generation that's becoming less spiritual and even though there's a higher and higher focus on discipleship of them they're becoming many many more of them are becoming dissatisfied with evangelicalism and starting to lose the faith as well so that's a really interesting moment and why we why we've phrased this episode is this the death of evangelism because of all these huge challenges that are now emerging by the turn of the century but the good news is evangelism isn't dead it's just changing and that's why the shock absorber is such a positive podcast because for me because it's about adapting it's okay well these big changes are happening how do we change how do we keep our message the same as a, as tim was saying you know stay on that evangelical line but let's preach the gospel in new and changing ways mm. yeah yeah, well, I think we've got plenty more to go on with coming up in the new episode. We've got so we've got like the emerging church. We can talk about progressive yeah. evangelism. Yeah. We've mentioned uh, the church planning movement that came out of that as a, almost as a reaction as well, and also the the new atheists who had a big impact on evangelism too. So that's a, the, plenty of things to go on. We we plan to have some of those things in this episode, but we went for the full hour, so we're like, we'll, we'll move on to the next episode. Um, thank you very much for everyone that's been listening or watching. We really appreciate it as always. You can always jump in on the conversation. Uh, thanks to Miles who chucked a YouTube comment on there on the last episode um, you can send in any questions you may have to joel at shockabsorber.com.au you can subscribe to our email newsletter at shockabsorber.com.au you can subscribe to the podcast and subscribe on YouTube uh, Sorrel Bible Church is our YouTube channel we'll have a Discord um, server where we like to chat about things if you're keen on doing that, that the link for that will be in the show notes you may also want to check out the Sorrel Bible Shop where any profits that we make from that would go to our indigenous ministry partners uh, we actually had uh, someone buy a love god love others shirt so you might want to check that out and uh that's it guys thank thanks you so, thank you so much and, and thanks for leading us so well week to week mm. mate that was excellent <laughs> that's yeah, all good. right no, we're having, i'm having a great time as always so thank you very much we should finish with a one way and one way one way <laughs> <laughs>